Emerald Podcast Series. Research that makes a difference. Welcome to the Emerald Podcast Series. In this series, we speak to experts from around the globe using research to create real impact. In each episode, we explore the role of research within the context of the environmental, economic, social and political challenges facing our society and look at the ways in which research, policy and practice interact to affect communities around the world. We're your hosts. I'm Daniel Ridge. I'm Helen Bedo, and we are publishers at Emerald Publishing. One of the most marked changes in the socio-political landscape of European society since the 1980s has been the rapid and widespread adoption of neoliberal policies across the continent. In this episode, we're talking with the editors of a new book which examines health and healthcare in our neoliberal era. The book scrutinizes three key characteristics of neoliberalism, self-responsibilization, health inequality, and organizational reform, and discusses the impact of neoliberalism on public health and the social construction of health and illness in Europe. We are joined by John Gabe, Emeritus Professor of Sociology, Royal Holloway, University of London, Mayo Cardano, Full Professor of Sociology of Health and Qualitative Methods for Social Research at the University of Turin, and Angela Genova, Research in the Department of Economics, Society, Politics at the University of Urbino, Italy. We'll begin first with John Gabe to set the scene and outline the key themes and discoveries of the book. So thank you so much for joining me today, John. That's okay. You know, to begin with, uh, can you give us an overview of the book that you co-edited with Angela Genova and Mario Cardano? Sure. So the starting point for the book was a recognition that neoliberalism has had a considerable impact, impact on healthcare policy and practice and on everyday experience of health and illness all across Europe. So we thought that this deserves serious attention. So we wanted to provide an overview of the impact of neoliberalism on healthcare across Europe, highlighting the different aspects of a common policy discourse, both at the national level and at the local level. And we use case studies from different European countries to do this. Wow, okay. So can you give some of the key terms, you know, sure. specifically, what, what is the neoliberal era? What do you mean by that? Sure. Well, in the social sciences, neoliberalism is a contested term. It's been defined as a political and economic philosophy uh, and an ideology. And in some cases, it's seen as a transnational process. In other words, it crosses national boundaries. Some have combined these elements simultaneously, seeing it as, as an ideology, a set of policies and programs, a set of distinctive institutional forms, and a variety of conceptions of how people should behave or act responsibly. So given its varied application, we thought it was best to recognize this and avoid using it deterministically. Rather, we wanted to emphasize the importance of context, the context in which neoliberalism is applied, and importantly, recognizing that the application of neoliberalism is always partial. It's, in other words, an incomplete process, and it also has a rather uneven geographical spread. Basically, that we want it to be seen as a sensitizing concept. In other words, a concept which guides our gaze to something which is complex, but something which we can make intelligible. Right. So if we're in the neoliberal era now, in a, in a sort of global sense, what came before it? Well, that's a good question. I suppose one would argue that it was influenced by a different form of economics, and an economics which was, for example, behind Roosevelt's New Deal, an emphasis on greater public spending uh, from the point of view of Britain, the influence of um, Maynard Keynes, and the emphasis, therefore, on public spending as a way of promoting economic growth. 
Right. So what have been the main findings of the book? So we focus in the book on three things. The, the book, in other words, is divided into three sections, one on health inequalities, one secondly on self, what we call self-responsibilization, and thirdly on cost containment. So I thought I, what I'd do is give you an example of each of these three areas from different chapters. Yeah, that sounds great. Yep. So talking about health inequalities, what we try to show in the book is how austerity policies, in other words, policies which involve a reduction in state spending, have exacerbated existing health inequalities. An example would be the huge increase in food banks in some countries, for example, in England, that is providing food to those in poverty as a consequence of austerity policies. And these policies have resulted, have been um, based on cuts in welfare. And of course, these cuts in welfare have uh, resulted in people being in ever greater poverty and therefore in the need of calling on food banks. In terms of self-responsibilization, I suppose the question here is how do citizens and patients in countries influenced by neoliberalism respond to the imperatives of healthcare policies? To what extent do they accept the ideology of responsibilization or do they resist it? An example which deals with this is a chapter focusing on neoliberal health policies in the Czech Republic and shows how citizens and patients in that country have in part come to accept that they should demonstrate self-responsibility as regards their health and praise the possibility of choice, but may also question how healthcare is delivered and governed by neoliberal tenets. So, for example, some patients criticize the market logic dominating the character of healthcare services, as well as the role played by private actors in healthcare. And finally, the third finding is relating to cost containment as a part of the drive to maximize productivity. What problems do neoliberal policies face when applied in actual historical context? One example is a chapter on the Italian National Health Service, which discusses how Italian healthcare has been decentralized in line with neoliberal principles, but that the financial deficits in some of the regions in Italy have in fact resulted in the central state intervening, but intervening at a cost. For example, reducing the number of hospital beds in a region, controlling the amount of money which can be spent on pharmaceuticals, freezing the number of people working in the healthcare system. So, choice of health policy has been limited in half of Italy as a result of these financial reasons. Wow. So can you tell me a little bit more about um, how healthcare fits into this neoliberal period and maybe why there's this, there was this push to put healthcare into that? Well, I suppose we need to understand the context, really, because we can't separate out healthcare from the wider economic and political policies of the time. So we need to go back, really, to the late 1970s, early 1980s, when economists like Hayek and Friedman were very influential and importantly influenced political leaders like Ronald Reagan in the United States and Margaret Thatcher in the United Kingdom. And they saw um, neoliberalism as the answer to the economic crisis inflation of the time. What they wanted to do was, um, to coin the phrase, roll back the influence of the state and reduce regulation. And importantly, this has since become common sense. In other words, seen as the only way to do things. There's no other way than the way that things are currently done. And this has been taken up in Europe, not just by um, 
England, but also by countries like Germany, Italy, and France. And all of this has been based on three different tenets. First of all, an emphasis on markets, secondly, on individualism, and thirdly, on decentralization. And we can see that's then being taken up um, in healthcare with an emphasis, for example, on creating a market in healthcare, competition between providers. That's been important. Secondly, in terms of individualism, an emphasis on self-responsibility and choice with patients making choices about their healthcare, reflecting their own knowledge. So um, in a sense, taking control of their health. And thirdly, in terms of decentralization, the way in which policies have um, invoked decentralization. And I was talking a little bit earlier about how that's panned out in healthcare in Italy. I think it's interesting that in this neoliberal era, we think that everything should be part of the free market. But at the same time, you said that this is partial. And so, you know, you look at other systems that we have in different countries, looking specifically at the United States, for example, education for young people, um, prisons, those are paid for by the state, even though prisons and education is, is also still partial. I guess, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of wondering about healthcare. Why is it that we just automatically think that that should also be part of, of the free market? Well, I don't think we do in, I mean, we, I think we'll be, that would be true in the United States, but it's, it's not the case in a country like uh, the United Kingdom or particularly England uh, or for that matter in Italy. Uh, where we have the National Health Service. So in England and in Italy, what we see is an attempt to introduce ideas about the market into a publicly funded healthcare system. So we have, in a sense, a hybrid system. And what's interesting, if we take England as a case in point, is the extent to which we still have, uh, ostensibly, an attachment to a universal healthcare system funded by the state, out of taxation, but at the same time, evidence of increasing privatization. And we can see that most starkly in the current period of COVID. So what we have, for example, um, with the introduction of testing and tracing, we have something called NHS test and trace. In other words, we're trying to um, check that people have got COVID by testing and then tracing their contacts to warn them if people have got COVID, they might have been in contact with um, these other people. Uh, now, the point about this is it's called NHS uh, test and trace, but it's actually being run privately and this is not acknowledged. So this is an example of what some would describe as creeping privatization. Well, this creeping privatization, is it inevitable? Are we heading further and further into privatization the way it exists in the United States, for example? It's not inevitable. It depends on the, the policies of the government in power at that time. The, 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 the problem that the current government has in England is that there's a strong allegiance to the National Health Service. And indeed, that has been enhanced further a result of the way in which the health service has tried to deal with the COVID pandemic. And indeed, the prime minister himself had COVID and was treated in an NHS hospital. So it's very difficult for this particular government to uh, attack or confront the publicly funded healthcare system and turn it into a private healthcare system. So they are therefore forced to do so if they want to do that uh, in 
more uh, subtle ways. Now, what we're facing uh, currently with Brexit, in other words, with Britain leaving the European Union, is that new trade deals have to be struck. And we're currently looking at a potential trade deal with the United States. And one of the issues there is the extent to which that trade deal covers healthcare. And if it does cover healthcare, uh, it, that would leave the door open to private providers from the United States increasing their provision of private health services in the United Kingdom to a considerable extent. So there's a lot to play for politically in the future. There was a term in the book that really struck me, which was neoliberal epidemics. Um, and Ted Schrecker talks about that. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and what he means by this term? When Ted Schrecker talks about neoliberal epidemics, he's talking about a relationship between different things. He's talking about the relationship between austerity policies on the one hand, and the way in such policies have increased class-based health inequalities. And further, the speed of the spread of such inequalities across time and place. In developing this argument, he's drawing parallels with the spread of pathogen-based epidemics, hence the expression neoliberal epidemic. His approach can be described as a political economy perspective where the causes of disease distribution are related to political and economic structures and processes, and also the unequal distribution of power. Also in the book, uh, Richard Horton writes that austerity is the calling card of neoliberalism. Can you tell us a little bit about how austerity fits into this picture? What Horton meant by the effects of austerity uh, is that he claims it follows an inverse harm law. In other words, the greater the austerity, the less the ability of communities to protect themselves. And we can see this with the impact of austerity on health and welfare spending and provision. For example, austerity policies have resulted in cuts in nurses and doctors in the National Health Service in England, a reduction in the number of hospital beds, an increasing weight for operations. And one of the consequences of the reduction in the number of hospital beds with COVID is that there's been, and in particular, the reduction in the number of intensive care beds has been that there has been a huge issue to do with whether the health service can cope with the number of COVID patients. Horton's also talking about the, uh, the benefit cuts and caps, which have included those for people with disabilities or on long-term illnesses as a result of COVID. And this in turn has led to responses like voluntary organizations providing food banks. And then we have cuts to local authority provision as a result of austerity. For example, cuts to um, provision for children, cuts to social care provision for people with disabilities, the loss of subsidies to bus operators, so the cost of travel on buses has increased, and of course it's poorer people who are more likely to use buses. Then we've had the impact of austerity on the ability of people to be resilient. Austerity resulted, for example, in an increase in precarious employment with no guaranteed minimum hours worked or income, an increase in housing insecurity with uh, austerity policies, greater evictions from rented accommodation, and increasing homelessness. And of course, there's also been a growth in personal debt. All of this has meant that there's been greater stress on people, poor people, and this has impacted on their ill health. I'd like to turn to Angela now to talk about her chapter, Health Inequalities in Europe. 
Angela, in your chapter you write, our health is inextricably linked to our geographies. Can you explain what you mean by this and tell us what you found in your research? Hi, Daniel. Sure. The study I conduct with my colleague, Simone Lombardini, which is presented in the book, Health and Illness in Neoliberal Era in Europe, focuses on healthy life expectancy for older people in comparative perspective in Europe. Um, data show that there are severe differences between EU countries. So we know in Europe we are living longer, but it is important to investigate how we are living in the last years of our lives. Healthy life years, which is also called disability-free life expectancy, is defined as the number of years that the person is expected to continue to live in a healthy condition. So how healthy life uh, years are as changed in neoliberal era in Europe? So we investigated uh, healthy life years changes within each country and between European member states. So we look at places, we look at countries, and we did this through two variables, income inequality and welfare regime. So our welfare system related to changes in healthy life years, and also our income inequalities related to changes in healthy life years. Both of the answers are yes, because in the last 12 years, 13 countries in Europe have improved their healthy life years in a statistically significant way. Scandinavian welfare regime countries mainly present a positive trend, while other countries like Bulgaria, Italy and Greece had a negative trend because they worsened their healthy life years. So Southern European countries have reduced their healthy life here. So higher income inequality, which is a key side effect of neoliberal policy, is also associated with lower healthy life years. So yes, place matters because differences in countries are very high. So specifically in Italy, what did you find um about uh, these healthy life years? In Italy, healthy life years worsened uh, after 2006. And uh, the data clearly show that the, um, the, the, the situation was uh, really worse for women. So in Italy, as uh, in other Southern European um, welfare countries, welfare regimes, the healthy life uh, years um, get worse uh, during the last decade. Wow, yeah. So I saw that you, you did write quite a bit about gender differences. Can you tell us a little bit more about what your research has revealed about gender differences? The sex differences in healthy life years, which has confirmed in this study, have been already observed in other studies, showing that on average, women tend to live longer than men and in better health, mainly in European countries and Western countries. Nevertheless, health inequalities is higher for the female than for the male population, showing that females are impacted more severely by this trend. 
the female population, more than the male population, has been more exposed to the inequality epidemic, paying the price for a decrease of a decrease in healthy life years. In Italy and in Greece, compared to the average of European countries, females present worse healthy life years, especially after the year 2006. 2006. So despite uh, um, another interesting data concern, a comparative perspective with other European countries, Denmark show a decrease in healthy life years, but in this country, the female population has been less affected by this trend. On the other side, in Sweden, the increase in healthy life year has been greater for female compared to male, showing so in any case um, differences related to different contexts. But to better understand this data, we have to consider gender perspective because structural gender differentiations characterize the pension systems in European member states and also the gender pay gap is one of the most evident indicators of disadvantage. Moreover, austerity represents a major challenge for gender equality, influencing demand for female labor, but also access to services that support women as carers, and therefore increasing the risk of pushing women back into unpaid domestic labor. So the neoliberal policy context increases women's vulnerability in society with regard to gender segregation in the labor market and in the family care role. And taking the life course approach, this is affecting female healthy life expectancy for women, for women in Europe also in the next years. So that fits into neoliberal epidemics, doesn't it? Um, that's something that John and I were talking about. And um, in his chapter, Ted Schrecker writes that the benefits of austerity have been oversold. And it seems that austerity measures in the UK have not provided the benefit that they once promised and have caused a lot of harm to low-income households and individuals. Can you talk a little bit about austerity measures and how they've affected this specific segment of the population? Austerity measures have been introduced in the last decade in most of Western countries through different practices and policy measures. Austerity measures have assumed different forms. We saw small changes in accessing criteria to social and health services. We also saw small change, for example, in the number of hours for services for disabled. Or also we considered the reduction of community health services. In Italy, for example, the reduction of personal working in healthcare services has been constant during the last three decades. And it is very well documented, especially concerning GP, family doctors, and primary care service under the umbrella of managerialization of healthcare services and new public management. So cutting and reduction in welfare services have differently affected women, men, elderly, young people with different economical resources. And income inequality is one of the main outcomes of neoliberal policy. And we know that socioeconomic condition is one of the main elements affecting health of the population. 
at this early stage in the pandemic, well, I mean, it's been going on for more than six months now, but I'm wondering what uh, the pandemic has revealed about healthcare inequalities. As you know, the book was born before the pandemic, but the book outlines key aspects of health issues and health policy that have turned crucial in the pandemic time. Inequities, self-responsibility, cutting health services, all of these aspects have turned being of paramount importance today. Inequities are avoidable. Self-responsibility shifts the focus from social dimension to individual. Neoliberal budget constraint has turned in cutting services that would have been crucial in front of pandemic, such as the community care services in Italy. At the beginning of the pandemic, we all watched it as northern Italy experienced a terrible outbreak that resulted in you know, many deaths. And so I'm curious, looking at Italy, is there a difference in the way healthcare is administered in different states? Yes. Actually, as the Italian Association of Sociology, the section Sociology of Health and Medicine, we are working together to investigate process of such sad trend because Lombardy in the north of Italy, the region of Milan and Bergamo, had a very high level of death. And we know that Lombardy is the more dynamic region from the economic point of view, but it is also the region with the highest level of air pollution. And moreover, its regional regional health system strongly has moved towards private healthcare system in the last decades under the neoliberal reform process. We are not in the condition now to show any kind of correlation. But data about the reduction of GP and primary care in Lombard, in Lombardia, in the north of Italy, in comparative perspective with other Italian regions, I'm afraid these data are going to tell us something about different regional healthcare models. And again, differences in healthcare regional um, experiences and models are example of the decentralization process which is another key element in neoliberal policy, as well as the manageralization of healthcare system. I'd like to turn to Mario now. Mario, in your chapter, The Neoliberal Politics of Otherness in Italian Psychiatric Care, you write about Basaglia's law passed in 1978. I had never heard of this before, and I found it really fascinating. Can you begin by telling us about psychiatry before the state, and then about the law and what it changed? Okay, I, I'll try. <laughs> uh, okay, in the past century, the Italian psychiatry was based mainly in a network of mental hospitals. The inpatient's uh, condition uh, were very, very uh, similar, very close to those of any other European countries. The psychiatric cure in the last century was... Uh, a disaster and uh, the cures were very primitive based on a mix of coercion and very rudimentary procedures meant to extirpate the madness from the body of sufferers uh, like hydrotherapy, malaria therapy and electroshock with many other coercive measures. Things uh, change uh, radically uh, in the 50s, when we, when new medication were discovered, uh, and the psych psychotropic 
pick uh, drugs promote either the possibility to create a relationship with the patient, but also a radicalization of the biopharmacological approach to madness that was the cipher of the first season of um, psychiatric story. And uh, during the 60s and the 70s, uh, all in the Europe, a critical view against the asylums, against the biopharmacological approach to madness emerged. And uh, in Italy, we had many uh, enlightened minds, and among them, one of the most uh, effective was uh, Franco Basaglia in changing all the things. Uh, at first, uh, Basaglia tried to demolish the asylum within its own walls. He, he removed the railing from the window, banned the use of uh, electroshock, mechanical restraint, and eliminate uniforms, both in the staff and the inpatient. But uh, in the end, he realized that all these measures produce nothing more than a form of repressive tolerance. So the mental institution, uh, Basaglia concludes, this the, the topic of the Brazilian conference, that uh, asylum cannot be reformed, it must be denied. So in 1978, we started with the, uh, what can be considered the most relevant reform of the Italian law, the, the, the closure of asylum started, uh, but to conclude all the process, we have to wait the beginning of this century, and it takes about 30 years. A new practice of cure and care was introduced that into, uh, underlined the role of community-based services. Uh, this is the Basaglia uh, revolution, but uh, it was not so a permanent result because uh, recently uh, the political climate uh, has changed dramatically and uh, the Italian national health system uh, has carried out uh, some very important cut in the uh, funding, reduction of investment, and this uh, following the uh, idea of uh, uh, the neoliberal philosophy, jeopardizing deeply the scope of the uh, Basaglia revolution. So you discuss how private industry and psychiatry uh, developed after Basaglia's law passed, so after 1978. Can you talk about this business of madness? that developed after this? To be effective, the, the shutdown of the asylum require a, a huge investment in the community care and also in the training of uh, health staff, nurses, doctors, and, and so on. This kind of investment contrasts with the neoliberal ideal of a state as a night watchman and the deep cut in the national health system seen inspired to this uh, to this idea so where the community services are not developed the market arrive offering beds or not properly therapeutic uh, community for individual 
without a place in, in society, offering personal to guard them when they are um, dangerous or considered dangerous, offering some kind of private uh, prison in, in that direction. So the idea is that having not fully realized the movement from the hospital to the uh, community service, in the middle, the market arrived and there is the business of the madness. Well, you also talk about the politics of otherness in your chapter, and you give two specific examples of what you mean by this. And you talk about inappropriate hospitalization and extreme physical restraint. Can you tell us about otherness and how it is treated in psychiatry? Okay. Uh, with politics of otherness, Luigi Garillo and I, Luigi Garillo was the co-author of, of the uh, essay, we mean uh, any kind of politics adopted toward all kind of differences which inhabit uh, all of us, ethnic, sexual, religious, any different way of being in the world. In our essay, we consider two main strategies to tackle the otherness typical of the asylum, but still present in the acute psychiatric world where we carry out uh, team ethnography recently. So uh, we observe both the inappropriate uh, hospitalization and also the extreme physical restraint. With, uh, Inappropriate hospitalization, we mean the custody in an acute psychiatric ward of people without any very real psychiatric diagnosis. Um, this can be due to the hospitalization of criminal, but also people uh, like homeless immigrants and, and so on. And this can be read in a double way. Acute psychiatric work became a sort of garbage can where any kind of people that do not satisfy the requirement of productivity and docility typical of the liberal, neoliberal uh, ideology were sent. And the other idea is that of the medicalization of uh, any kind of difference, any kind of uh, otherness uh, that became a, a clinical uh, label to be treated uh, with uh, medication and, and so on. The second politics uh, that we observe is the extreme physical restraint that meant to tackle unmanageable and disruptive behaviors. You mentioned it just now, and I read about, I read in your book about how you give an example of a homeless man who had been picked up and had been brought to a, a mental hospital. And I'm wondering if there has been reform to prevent things like that from happening. Has there been any type of a movement to reform so that, that hospitals aren't sort of catch-alls for these others? That, that we pick up in society that don't seem to have a place? Uh, in a way, there is, but it's not so easy to manage because uh, homeless or migrants who arrive in an acute uh, psychiatric ward are, in a way, disturbed. But their kind of illness is not a psychiatric illness. It's a, the illness of poverty, the illness of exclusion, and they react maybe in a very dramatic 
uh, way to this kind of uh, uh, situation. So it's not a matter to reform psychiatry, but it's a matter to reform society, uh, avoiding this kind of uh, discrimination against poor people, against different people due to their migration trajectories and, and so on. Well, it's, that's really interesting. At this early stage, what are your thoughts on mental health and its treatment in Italy during the pandemic? Okay, during the pandemic, we had two different I- impacts, I- in my view. Uh, from psychiatric uh, patient, the duress uh, to carry on living in a, a tense familial context can produce uh, an increase of uh, suffering, both for them and for their uh, caregiver. In the other side, um, for the um, health uh, staff, either uh, the one committed in the cure of mental health and the other committed in the cure of any kind of uh, disease, mainly the COVID uh, infection, we realize a severe attack to their mental health and we are going to pay the consequence of this kind of uh, overworking and over-emotional uh, involvement uh, in the next months and also maybe in the next years. Yes, we're going to be seeing the effects of the pandemic for a very long time. But thank you for joining me today to talk about this. Thank you. Thank you. We'd like to thank you for listening to today's episode. For more information about health and illness in the neoliberal era in Europe, please see our show notes on our website, along with the transcript and more information about our guests. I'd like to thank Jen McCall for her work on this episode and Alex Jungius of This Is Distorted. 